0: a mission. It's a mission to turn our world upside down. That happens when people hear the good news of Jesus. So get ready for God to turn you upside down. We in the Western world tend to think of ourselves as individuals. We are quite an individualistic culture. That's compared to the Eastern world, where people still see themselves as part of the broader community. They define themselves by family, or clan, or people group, or even as a nation. But we in North America especially live such individualistic lives. Just think of the main questions that many people will ask about the meaning of life. They'll ask, what do I want out of life? What gives me pleasure? What is my truth? Now, we might think that becoming a follower of Jesus would help us overcome this tendency, this tendency towards individualism. But often it doesn't. Think of how many North American believers define the essence of Christianity. They'll say it's about, quote, my personal relationship with Jesus. My personal relationship with Jesus. You won't find that phrase in the Bible about a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, of course, it's true. Each of us needs to be born again. Each of us needs to put our personal faith in Jesus as Savior. But think about even this a little more deeply. When you put your faith in Jesus, is it just you alone, all by yourself? Have you individually and privately made a personal decision to follow Jesus? Well, often there's much more involved. Experts tell us that the vast majority of people learn about Jesus in a social setting, in the gathering of the church, the the social group, the communal body gathered together. It's estimated that over 90% of adult believers today were either raised in the church or were significantly involved in the life of the church in their early years. The vast majority of believers heard the call to repent and believe in Jesus from maybe the pastor of the church or from a leader or a teacher in the church or perhaps at some church-sponsored event like a church camp or a youth group. In other words, For the vast majority of believers today, their faith in Jesus was birthed in a community of faith, in the communal context of the church. We aren't as much individuals as we might imagine. In addition to the communal setting of the church, there's also the communal context of the Christian family for most believers today, that's where we first heard about Jesus, in the Christian family, with one parent or both parents being Christians. They read Bible stories to us when we were children. They brought us to the church. They taught us how to pray. They were examples of how to live for Jesus. And even if you weren't raised in a Christian home, Think of how you came to faith in Jesus. It was probably in the context of a friendship, a social connection with someone. A Christian friend maybe talked to you or gave you a Bible or invited you to read the Bible with them. Or maybe it was that you were invited to a Bible study group or to a Christian home somewhere and eventually you were invited to a church. My point is, Putting our faith in Jesus is never an individualistic kind of thing. 95 times out of 100, maybe 98 times out of 100, it's done in a broader social context, in a more communal Christian setting. Now, over the past few episodes, we've considered how many people have given up on the church. They've just stopped attending. In this episode, I'm trying to, trying to give some, some final thoughts. Some final thoughts on this topic about giving up on the church, and more importantly, why the church is of the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In a book entitled, Life in the Father's House, the writers refer to a book written by George Barna. Now, you might know Barna. He's a fairly famous Christian pollster. Barna says this in one of his books, Quote, Scripture teaches us that devoting your life to loving God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul is what honors him. Being part of a local church may facilitate that, or it might not. I am not called to attend or join a church. Barna says, I am not called to attend or to join a church. Now, Barn is right about many things that he writes in many different books. And he's also correct in observing in this quote that for some people, the church has not been that helpful in forming their faith in Jesus. But when he says we're not called to attend or join a church, well, that's going way too far. God does call us to attend church to be part of a church. The Bible calls us to do that. Jesus calls us to belong to his spiritual body on earth. Now, as I mentioned in past episodes, we have to make sure that we belong to a biblical kind of church with biblical teachings and that finding one of those churches can be a bit challenging. But please, as they say, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. The bathwater of the church can be dirty. Sometimes very much so. But there's a living thing found in that sometimes dirty water. It's the living body of Jesus. It's the church, the congregation of believers that meets together. Please don't throw that out. Here's the fact. The Bible only knows of believers who are living and active parts of the church. The Bible only knows of believers who are living parts of the church, connected to the church, involved in the life of the church. Believers who are meeting with fellow believers in worship and in praise and in Christian ministry. But as I've said, this whole idea of a communal connection to Jesus in the context of the church, well, that runs counter to our modern culture. It runs counter, especially to our Western culture, a culture which so emphasizes the individual. But if you read Jesus, if you read him in the gospel, how much of Jesus' life and his teaching runs completely counter to the ways of the world? Jesus' teaching is often countercultural. In fact, we've named our podcast Mission Upside Down. Why? Well, because with Jesus, almost everything in ordinary life gets turned upside down. In Acts 17, verse 7, unbelievers observed that those who were spreading the gospel message were turning the world upside down. The gospel radically reverses our natural thinking and our natural values and our natural desires. And so, too, when it comes to the church. So let me ask, what was Jesus' mission on this earth? What was his purpose in coming here? Well, it was first of all, of course, to save sinners, to die on that cross, substituting himself for us, and to prove himself perfectly righteous before God, that God then will credit Jesus' righteousness to us as we trust in him. But there's so much more to Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus says this in Matthew 16, verse 18, I will build my church. I will build my church. Now, Jesus doesn't often speak about the church in the Gospels, and that's probably because the disciples wouldn't have understood that kind of language in those early days. What they did understand, of course, from the Old Testament, was that God was busy building up his kingdom on earth. So Jesus would use Old Testament language to talk about that communal aspect of obeying God and following Jesus and submitting to the lordship of Jesus. It's in the church that Jesus is particularly known and obeyed as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's why Jesus would proclaim the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent of your sins, trust in Jesus, and then follow him. Submit to his reign, his rule over you. That happens especially in the church. That's one reason why the best theologians will refer to the Israel of the Old Testament as an early form of the church. The church in seed form, the church in embryonic form. Old Testament Israel wasn't yet the actual church because the actual church required the fullness of the gospel. It required Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. The church required the fullness of the Spirit. That couldn't happen until after Jesus ascended to heaven. But in so many ways, Old Testament Israel represented the church, it foreshadowed the church that's why peter can speak as he does peter's speaking as a jew peter speaking as someone who knew the old testament very well listen to what he writes in his first letter 1 peter chapter 2 verse 9 he's addressing believers you in the plural those who belong to churches you he says you are a chosen people you are a holy nation You are a people belonging to God. Not the emphasis on the individual, but the emphasis on belonging to the group, to the whole people, to the nation, to the group that belongs to God. That's the same kind of language that the Bible used for Old Testament Israel. In fact, the Apostle Paul kind of shocks us at the end of his letter to the Galatians, Galatians 6. He says that the church of Jesus is, quote, the Israel of God. The church is the Israel of God. Again, that idea of the church being God's chosen people in Jesus, a holy nation. So just as every Israelite of the Old Testament had to belong to Israel, the nation, so every believer today must belong to the church. Let me say it even more boldly. It would be impossible for an Israelite not to belong to national Israel. So it's impossible for a believer not to belong to some church today. It might also be helpful to remember this. We as believers don't merely go to church. We're not merely involved in the church. We as believers are the church. We are to display ourselves as church. And that happens particularly as we are meeting together. The church is the assembly. The church is the congregation, the flock. We are the church as we worship together, as we pray together, as we sing together, as we hear the word of God preached, as we receive the Lord's Supper together. That's one reason why the writer to the Hebrews says this. Chapter 10, verse 25 do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Or in modern translation, let us not give up meeting together. You see, church as church meets together. You are part of the church and therefore you must meet. That's really Christianity 101. It's basic Christianity. And then notice how that verse continues. Hebrew 10:25. 25. Let us not giving up Give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. You see, the writer recognizes that some believers have fallen into a habit, a bad habit, a habit of not meeting together as church, not assembling together. So the writer says, What makes this such a bad habit is this. Rather, he says, we must be encouraging one another. If you're not meeting together, you can't encourage one another and you can't be encouraged by the other believers. When we meet, yes, we worship, we praise, we sing, we hear the word, but we're also encouraging one another, particularly in the gospel, to encourage one another that Jesus truly has died for our sins, that Jesus has truly taken away our guilt and condemnation. When we meet, we remind one another that Jesus is our righteousness by God's free grace. And that in response, we are encouraged as church to be living for Jesus. Not out of guilt, not out of pressure, but out of our love for Jesus. That's what we do as we come together as church. We meet in order to encourage each other in Jesus. Now, of course, it's true there are a handful of circumstances when a genuine believer won't be able to meet with others in church. I can think, for example, of someone being converted on their deathbed. They only have a few days or weeks of life. Obviously, they won't be able to meet with other believers in a church. Or, Or maybe someone gets converted in a strict Islamic country. Church meetings are prohibited. But let's be clear about it. Those circumstances are very, very rare. They are exceptional cases. And here in North America, of course, they're not at all applicable to our situation. Please don't fall into the bad habit of not meeting with other believers. And here's another thing. Occasionally, I've heard believers say something like this. You know, it's amazing to understand that there are millions of Christians around the world and that I'm really part of them. No, I don't belong to an organized church, but I read my Bible and I pray. Sometimes I watch streaming worship services on the internet. But I belong to that spiritual body of believers from all around the world. Now, in historic Christian theology, that's referred to as the aspect of the church known as the invisible church, the unseen spiritual body of believers. But that's used in only some limited circumstances. It's it's helpful to think of the invisible church for these two reasons. First of all, it emphasizes how we not only belong to the local congregation, but that we're connected to other believers from around the world and throughout time. The Bible speaks of one holy church, one bride of Christ. And it's good to remind ourselves that we're all one in Jesus, part of that invisible church. Another reason why we sometimes speak of the invisible church is this. It helps us explain the presence of unconverted people within a local congregation. So it can be helpful to think of the church as two concentric circles, the larger circle of all the professed believers, those we see with our physical eyes, that we can refer to as the visible aspect of the church. And then there's a slightly smaller circle within that larger one. Those are the true believers, those who are genuinely converted to faith in Jesus. But of course, only God can see that smaller group, that invisible church. God only can look on the heart. But having said that, Let's be reminded of this. The Bible never talks about us joining the invisible church or worshiping with the invisible church or doing ministry as part of the invisible church, as if that's even possible to belong to some invisible congregation. No, on this earth, we only have the option of meeting and worshiping invisible congregations. To say that you hold membership in the invisible church is like saying you're part of some invisible family or that you're married to an invisible spouse, or you belong to an invisible country. Listen to a description of that first church after the day of Pentecost as people were converted to faith in Jesus. Acts 2, starting with verse 42. They, the believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. All the believers were together. And they had everything in common. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Nothing difficult to understand with those words. It's very clear. All the believers met together. No one pulled away. No one stayed isolated. Everyone met together in worship and in regular fellowship. They met in larger settings, in the temple courtyards, and then they met in smaller settings, in individual homes. But they met with other followers of Jesus. That's basic Christianity. Belonging to a gathering of believers as a church is as basic as trusting in Jesus as our Savior. But the writer to the Hebrews noted that even in his day, maybe a decade after that first church in Jerusalem or 20 years afterwards, some believers were already falling into a bad habit, the habit of not meeting with other believers, not gathering regularly with brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus. If that was a habit in those early years, how much more so today in our time of individualism. And now we have this, of course, we have the coronavirus situation, and we've had a time of isolation and distancing, and here in Canada especially, a longer time of not meeting together as church. I think that some believers have gotten quite used to that, in fact. I mean, why bother with getting up on time on a Sunday morning, cleaning up? getting showered, getting dressed, rushing about on a Sunday morning to meet other believers at church, isn't it 10 times easier just to stay at home? And just to get comfortable on the couch and watch the live stream? I mean, why take all the effort of getting into your car or on public transportation and, and going to a distant location? How much easier with a few clicks of the keyboard to just log on? And why bother physically sitting in that place, in a church bench or on a chair? Why be bothered with that unfriendly woman or that overly talkative guy at church? Why not maybe just invite a friend or two to your apartment or your home and watch the screen and enjoy a cup of coffee while you're watching? I think that will be a big, big challenge for us in the next two years especially to renew that biblical sense of the value of meeting together in person, to overcome our cultural individualism, to overcome, yes, our fears about COVID and all that we read in the news, to renew our our natural love for just clustering together in, in families or as couples huddling together and just refusing to meet. You know, during the height of the epidemic, some people said this, Isn't it wonderful that the church can still be preaching the word? Isn't it wonderful that we can be online, that the gospel is still going out into all the world? And well, yes, I suppose, given the alternative, watching a screen is better than nothing. But over the months, i become personally convinced of this, that the streaming church really is not church. Instead, it seems to be more of an event. It's a presentation of an event on a two-dimensional screen. It was back in the 1960s and early 70s that a Canadian professor named Marshall McLuhan became world famous. He taught at the University of Toronto, and he actually won Canada's highest literary award in 1962. Here's the phrase for which McLuhan became especially famous. He said, The medium is the message. The medium is the message. His point was this, that the manner in which people receive information is just as important as the information itself. In some cases, the medium becomes even more important than the message. McLuhan rightly perceived that the medium is never neutral. It's not just a tool to deliver the message. No, the medium changes the message. It changes the context. It even changes us. Receiving worship through the medium of the internet changes how we view church. It changes how we participate in worship or don't participate in worship. Hmm. It's going to be interesting these next two or three years. Now that things are starting to open up, I surely hope that we as believers will become eager to actually meet together. Experts say it takes only, what, a few weeks for a habit to become ingrained. I read somewhere online that it takes, on average, 66 days to root a new behavior to become a habit well, we've not only gone 66 days, we've gone more than 66 weeks in getting that habit reinforced, the habit of not physically meeting together. I hope it's not going to take us years to overcome that bad habit. I hope that instead, we'll be bursting with eagerness to again be the church, the church that Jesus has called us to be, that visible, meeting-to-gather congregation of Jesus, that we might again encourage one another in these very difficult days. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Randall. This podcast is produced by my brothers in Christ, Dennis and Moses. Won't you tell your friends about us? We're Mission Upside Down.